Welcome to another episode of Thoughts of a Trillionaire and Becoming a Techno Wizard. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, lots to talk about, as always. <laughs> I really wanted to do this more consistently, but I got sick. I got sick over the weekend. Um, luckily, not like COVID sick, but allergies, right? And it's so annoying because I don't get hit by allergies often. Like, it only happens maybe every other year or every other other year. And it's different every time. Like sometimes my throat is scratchy. Sometimes I get crop, like break out in boils and my eyes get super itchy. Um, this year, I just got like a really bad congestion and head cold. So um, yeah, I couldn't even look at screens for the last two or three days. I had to just sit back in bed rest and um, caught up on some podcasts. Those, that, was, that, was, that was fun. Um, but yeah, overall, I ain't get to do much. So as that's that, that, that means this is not going to be a lightning round. This is going to be me taking in the next hour or so to talk about everything that's been going through my head the last couple of days. All right. <clears throat> so apologies up front. If my voice sounds weird or if I'm coughing or sneezing a little bit, um, this may be, I'm not going to say no one last time, but like, I, I do want to get to a point where I start editing these and making it like put some visuals, put some like sources and stuff like that. I definitely want to get to that point. But right now I'm, I have a lot of other stuff going on in my life, like with my job, I'm trying to, you know, get better on, you know, making more monies, <laughs> um, building my business, uh, at least getting it, getting that to a point where it's like an MVP and I have people buying and all that other stuff. So this is not high priority, at least not yet. But just to let you know, you know, I am planning on that stuff. If you are watching this, you want to help out, hit me up because I would love to need some, get some help with editing. Um, but until then, this is just going to be raw, you know, uncut, unedited, just my, my thoughts, you know, unsourced, unfortunately. Um, I will try to, uh, as always talk about, you know, oh, this is where I got this from, but you know, most of my, my, my thoughts, I like listen to so much, so much stuff and I almost never take notes. So yeah, I don't mean to like, you know, do any of that, but I, I try to make clear that these are not all my thoughts. You know, this is stuff, uh, I've gotten from other places and everything like that. But anyways, I just wanted to get that, get that. Out there. So, what have I been thinking about? Thinking a lot about scarcity, you know, and the whether or not that's actually a good thing, um, especially in terms of our monetary system. And uh, and I got to think about that because I was listening great to the great Lex Friedman for his podcast when he's talking about he was talking with. Um, What's his name? Oof. Alex Pompliano. Um, Anthony Pompliano about Bitcoin. And one of the things he mentioned was that, you know, one of the reasons why Bitcoin is so, or any cryptocurrency is so powerful is because it has scarcity, right? You can only mint or, you know, mine a certain amount of Bitcoin or a certain amount of cryptocurrency. And so it's inherently limited. And it's even more so than gold or any other, you know, resource that we can get on earth 
because on earth you like when we mine stuff physically you can't actually you don't actually know exactly how much you're getting out exactly how much is mined and so on and so forth we can make good estimates and they point that out in the podcast but with bitcoin and cryptocurrency you know you know exactly how much bitcoin is out there you know exactly how much has been mined you know what's left you know you know all this other stuff so it was saying that that that's a great part of cryptocurrency but for me i was like is that is that i don't think that's like the benefit like i understand why that's important and i understand why it's especially important for currency however i think of the biggest use case for cryptocurrency or for blockchain rather is um basically what i talked about before i think on last episode is the use for transparency essentially data transparency so the fact that you can use it for such things as validation so in my last podcast i think i mentioned this but imagine when you when you get a certain uh, information when a scientist you know does a research study today that information goes to like a research journals or peer reviews and all the other stuff and all, all that is locked away behind paywalls and behind this specific thing whatever behind academic academia and unfortunately that mean that means number one it's really hard to access for the average person number two that is that leaves a, a huge gate kind of gatekeeping um, in terms of who can do research and what gets peer reviewed and what gets out there to the press, because usually because of that lack of access, the journalism and press and all that other stuff, they have a kind of, I don't want to say monopoly, but they have a better chance of getting first access to that information. And so they kind of can spin that however they want, or, you know, botch the spinning you know because they may the the journalists or people who are reading these articles and telling the public about it they may not be as technically savvy in terms of um, scientific reading so they might not be able to to read through that article as clearly and trend trends um and communicate that article as clearly that research you know as clearly as as a scientist who did it intended and so that's how we get all these really bad takes um and furthermore science is a constant process of you know being updated right so they might figure out something today but then tomorrow or next week they figure out something completely different and it completely you know flips around what they thought they knew before and that's a good thing that's a good thing about science that's why we make so much progress but that comes at the cost of communication so now the people who are communicating science are like, they either don't know, like they don't know something has been up, updated or they don't care. And that's even worse where something is updating and like, I'm not gonna talk about that. You know, I'm not, oh, people don't wanna hear that or blah, 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 right? And so now people are, they only heard the old thing, right? And so you have this huge problem there. And even if you do, even in the few people who do, update you know the language um based on what the new research that has come come out now people are like oh i don't know what to believe <laughs> you just changed you you just said one thing now say another i'm like that's the whole point of science man this is not a religion it's not set in stone right and so there needs to be a better communication standard in the 
and a better mental model for what science is and how it is communicated. And I think blockchain can do a great job of doing that, right? So long as the interface is clear. So how I think that can happen is, is such that basically similar to how a blockchain is mined. So you can essentially have research, your research um, as a block, right? And then when that research gets peer reviewed, that is the work that is a quote unquote proof of work. So yeah, this is more ideological than, than computational, but I think, I think it can be applied nonetheless, you know? So you have that blockchain of the research that peer review is your proof of work or your proof of stake. And that that's what changes the blockchain. And because, because that blockchain is on a, is on a decentralized ledger, meaning everybody who has access to that blockchain can now see that change, right? They now see, oh, wow, this has been updated. And it's been updated because it's been peer-reviewed by 5, 10, 12, whatever people, right? And so that, that inherently creates a better, a more transparent, you know, um, scientific progress. And then you can, because it's, it's, it's done from the get-go, right? You, as when you opt into blockchain, you know the mental model is already set up such that it's going to change over time. And so the mental model for the scientific blockchain, I think, should follow where you know when you sign into, you know, sciencetoken.com, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, you know, science, con, science coin, whatever, <laughs> whatever this blockchain is going to be uh, called you know that this is going to be updated regularly and it should be, you should, you expect it to be updated and you, you are looking forward to that. And so it inherently, you know, changes the, the mental model. So, yeah, I think that's a huge use case for, for science. Furthermore, you can even back it up with a further, you can try to bring in this, this, the security aspect that blockchain um, a lot of blockchains use for their security. So uh, tools like Algorand, that was another one that um, Lex did an interview with, with Silvio, I think his name is, Silvio Mankella, what's his name? But he has a blockchain called um, Algorand or cryptocurrency. Um, Sil yeah, Silvio McCalley. And with his blockchain of uh, called Algorand, it's, it's secure, it's scalable, and it's fast. So he's figured out everything, right? All the, all the things that you need for good blockchain. And uh, I'm not going to go into the depths of how it works. You can look that up yourself. Look up Lex Friedman's podcast. It's super great. Um, or look up, you know, agrand.com or whatever the site is. But basically, um, he, he makes it, he, he ensures that it's secure, right? So that you can't corrupt the people who are voting for the blockchain. And that, that's super important for blockchain and for any system really to make sure that people who are voting on the next thing are not corruptible. So I think that's another huge point that needs to be included in science because there are, there are and has been moments when the scientific rigor of those tests were corrupted by private interests or even government interests where they went in and was like, oh, here's going to be, here's what we're going to study. And it's inherently biased from the beginning where they're going in for a confirmation bias. They're trying to prove this thing right rather than trying to, you know, prove it wrong. All right. And so they, they go in there for, for a confirmation bias. 
and that creates this whole suite of bad stuff like the whole thing with um with sugar with sugar and fat the whole thing with uh from i think it was the 70s 80s or 90s i don't know one of those whenever that started the whole thing with fat being seen as bad is was actually and has been proven you know to be um to be a factor of the sugar industry (laughs) because you know prior to that or people will realize maybe or starting to realize that sugar is really bad for you and so they tried to flip it around where they did research scientific research quote unquote um showing that fat was the thing that's bad for you so now everything was low fat everything was oh fat is bad you know don't less fat and now people they weren't thinking about sugar as much it's only been relatively recently where we've been realizing that a sugar is actually the bigger problem and you actually do need fat right there's actually there's different types of fat that maybe not might not be good for you but in general you do need fat and sugar you you need a lot less of so you know that set us back in terms of our health by several decades probably right and um there's there's a lot of other cases of this stuff so it's going to be super important for this blockchain to be inherently secure. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like, to be honest with you, but I think it does. I think it does come in the same aspect of having that transparency. So maybe those peer reviews are also on some sort of blockchain. I don't know. <laughs> Blockchains on blockchains, right? Where you can see who is the peer review. You can see who is the funding. Oh, maybe that's it. Maybe check who is the funding, who is funding this research and what are their goals? What, what are their agendas? What's the original thesis of the research, right? So maybe the research itself has to be validated before it can even be included in the blockchain. And then once that research is validated, you do the research, it's peer reviewed um, by a number of people who are all unaffiliated with each other. And then that gets added to the next chain. So maybe that would be a better thing because with with scientific blockchain, it doesn't have to go super fast. Like with, with FinTech blockchain, like it has to, you have to be able to have certain amount of transactions in a second because, you know, people are spending money all the time, transferring money and stuff like that. But for this, it's less about how fast it's moving and how more about how accurate, how, you know, robust the system is. So, <clears throat> I think that will that will go a long way and making this super making science just better. <laughs> so that's one thing I've been thinking about. Let me drink some water. So yeah. Um and the next thing I was well, I started talking about scarcity. <laughs> yeah, so <clears throat> that's why I think scarcity is not a huge proponent into why currents went into blockchain in general now in terms of currency i understand it being used but at the same time i also think that scarcity is not a good thing for currency either and here's why don't get me wrong i get the point right like it's the currency system that we set up runs on the idea of scarcity like the whole reason gold is gold is, is like valuable is because we as humans ascribed value to it and we ascribed value to it because it's shiny <laughs> simple as that it's shiny it's um rare 
it's hard for other people to get. And, um, you know, so that, that comes with it some, some, some level of power, some level of elitism. And that has created, you know, much of our inequality. This is my problem with scarcity is that it inherently creates inequality. You cannot have a pure egalitarian society if you have it, if, if it is based on scarcity. Like it, the ideas are fundamentally mutually exclusive. You either have scarcity or you have pure egalitarianism. You cannot have both. It just doesn't make sense, right? Because scarcity, the whole reason for scarcity is to create a sense of I have this and you do not. It's to create a sense of, you know, um, only a certain amount of people can have this. It's to create a, a, a elite, an elite class or a, you know, an uh, elite tool or whatever, right? We did not have scarcity as humans for a long time. For, and I've been, as you know, in the last couple of episodes, I've been studying hunter-gatherer cultures. And it turns out for most, most of human history, for over 200,000 years since we became Homo sapiens sapiens, um, and I say that because there are other Homo sapiens, Homo sapiens, Neanderthals, Denisovans, all this other stuff. There's other Homo sapiens, other humans, other, other you know, humanoid creatures. But Homo sapiens sapiens are us, right? <laughs> and um, yeah, ever since we've been hunter-gatherer cultures, right? As far as we can tell, it was far more egalitarian. Why? Because there was no scarcity because the land to them was so abundant that the idea of scarcity seemed ridiculous. Um, I can't, I don't, I don't think I have a quote ready right here, but I'm going to badly botch this, but um, one of the hunter gatherer cultures, when they asked them, you know, why don't you farm or whatever? It was like, why would we toil? Why would we do all this hard work to, you know, save up for the future when you can walk up and get the coconut, right? When this, this, the land is so abundant with all the resources that we need, right? That was the mentality. And say what you will about planning for the future or whatever, all the, whatever you want to call it, whatever excuse you want to make, but you have to realize that our current idea of scarcity and abundance is, is indoctrinated, right? It's ethnocentric to be basing the hunter-gatherer culture from our own, right? You can call them um, whatever you want to call them, but it's wrong, right? <laughs> Basically, you can't assume that that they were wrong about you know the land being abundant because to them it was abundant. To them and their future in their time, for hundreds of thousands of years, the land truly was abundant. Every single day they went out spent two to three hours a day and were able to get all the food they needed for that day. They had far more choice in their food. Uh, again, I, I'm basically saying the same thing every single episode, but I, I think it's important too, because and just in case you hear this episode, you didn't hear the last ones. I Once again, let me disabuse you of the notion that hunter-gatherer cultures were worse off. We have research from multiple people, from multiple hunter-gatherer societies that shows that they were more healthy than us. They had more genetic diversity. They had more 
um, um, it's basically healthiness, but they had more dietary diversity, meaning they ate more things. They had um, more fulfillment, right? They, they had more innovation. That's right, more innovation. They were more creative in many aspects. They had more spare time. They had more time for art um, because they had more spare time. And their religion, their, their um, rituals were more egalitarian. They didn't have some, oh, this is the priest and they're the only ones that did this. This is the chosen one and they can do that. No, they didn't have any of that. It was more egalitarian once again. So they had more child rearing right? They had where they spent more time with their kids. Their kids were more altruistic, were more sharing, were more independent. Like all of this, all of these things that we want today in our kids, in our life, in our society, they had, they had all of that. So what went wrong? I think, and a lot of the research is showing this as well, agricultural society is very much like a virus where like especially like the core like the like like COVID right it take it took some time to realize that agriculture was actually a bad thing just like in with when you get hit with a virus like the like COVID it takes some time before the symptoms of that virus manifest themselves and before that time, it takes like maybe seven to nine days or whatever before you actually can tell you have the virus unless you, you know, you went and got a test, um, unless you knew you were exposed and got a test. If you didn't know that, like that's why it spread so fast, so quickly early on. And that's why we had to do all this lockdown stuff, because if we didn't, it probably would have been way worse. Um, and we could still see that like in here in Georgia, you still got people with cases and all this other stuff. You know, I still hear every day, oh, this, this such and such died from COVID like a year later, a year later after this. But anyways, let's not get into that. But my point is that like with COVID or many other other more dangerous viruses, it takes a certain amount of time to realize that you've been hit with a dangerous virus. And in that time, you can spread it to other people. This is the same thing. We have an ideological virus. That's what agriculture was. And that's not the only one. You know, I think I think um, scarcity was another one, but that that came from agriculture. So this is this number number of things. I think unchecked growth is another one. Again, that probably also came from agriculture. So there's a number of these things that came from agriculture. And to further the metaphor, it took hundreds if not thousands of years for the neolithic revolution and this is once again this is you can look this up look up you know um i have have it let me see if i can pull it up one of these studies but they were doing a study showing that the neolithic revolution wasn't really like when they say revolution they mean just a radical change it wasn't actually a quick thing it took thousands of years between ten thousand and um between no 15,000 and 9,000 years ago is when doing that whole process, right? That's the whole pro that whole span of time. So three to 4,000 years, it took for multiple societies to switch from hunter gatherer to agriculture. And many of those, many, much of that time, they actually can show that people went back. There were multiple cultures who realized, oh, this is not good. And they went back to hunter gathering, right? So, 
it, it wasn't a straight, it wasn't progress. It wasn't straight. Oh yeah, this is, this is better. Um, I'm going to explain why, at least in my theory so far, or based on reading all this research. Um, but let me see if I can pull up the specific one. Um, try to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be better with this, these notes and citations and stuff like that. Cause in my head, people can always just Google it. If I found it on Google, I feel like you can find it too, but I know it's hard to find this stuff, especially if you don't know what to don't know what to look for. That's another reason why I want to start my business is it is hard to, to do good research. Um, but uh, let me see. DNA of Ice Age people. That was a good video. Um, that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about right now, but well, somewhat. The DNA of Ice Age Europe, a conversation with Dr. Cosimo Post. Um, and that one's talking about how, uh, well, obviously what the DNA was, but one thing that stand out to me is cause I'm on this Afrocentrist thing is that, you know, when, when the, when, the, when our ancestors migrated up to Europe, you know, a lot of them kept still had a darker skin complexion because they had more, more food. They had more um, access to meat. And when they switched to an agricultural society, when they had more vegetables, that's when they started getting a lighter skinned, a more pale skin complexion um, because they had, um, you know, less access to meat and they had the, they had to spend that vitamin D, you know, for their, like they had, they weren't able to get as much vitamin D in, into transparent. Um, but yeah, that was, that was interesting, but there's a number of things there. I'm sorry. I saved so much stuff now. Um, anyways, I, I don't know. I'll I try to put it in the notes if I remember, but so my, my, my idea for why this has changed. So for why we, 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 we went with agricultural cultures is because it seemed like it was improvement, right? Um, food is not just agriculture, they call it also food production. There was this research that showed that fruit, food produ fruit producers were less egalitarian than hunter-gatherers. So people that fished, for instance, was also a food producer because it wasn't fishing is not exactly hunting. It's like you can stay in one spot and just get a whole bunch of uh, a fish and you can store that fish for later, right? Um, people who started you know, putting like little staple crops in their in their area and behind by their by their house or you know their entire community right those small agriculture farms those early farms those began to get became more or less egalitarian and um and by egalitarian i mean the first first and foremost they can point out that hunter-gatherer cultures many hunter-gatherer cultures tended to be more matriarchal or matrilineal meaning they would stay with their mother or their mother's family. Um, while food producers would, would go with their father or their father's family. And part of that could be, you know, again, this is still early research. So the why is not very clear yet. The why as to, you know, why they became less egalitarian is less clear. But my kind of idea on it so far based on my research based on my my logic is that number one when you tend to when you when you 
bring resources together, right? When you hoard resources, because that's what you're doing here. When you hoard resources, it changes your mentality from the land is abundant, everybody has access to everything, and to it creates a power structure into, oh, I have more than you, right? And in a hunter-gatherer culture, anytime you hunted better or you got more resources than other than another another person, there was there was no like different cultures did it differently. Some cultures they hunted, and the person who who crafted that arrow, that was the one who owned quote unquote owned the meat. So that meat would go to them. Other cultures, um, they would just share it with everybody. As soon as it doesn't matter who hunted what, it just goes in the pot whatever. And I told you before they had the, um, the, uh, making fun of the meat. So if you, whenever you hunt it, you got a big, big, you know, hunt, whatever, you got a big game. They didn't congratulate you. They went like, Oh yeah, good job. Yeah. You awesome. No, no. They, it was like, ah, oh, I don't know if this is going to be enough for us. You know, this seems so skinny, whatever. And again, once again, the reason for that, and I love saying this is that they had to humble people. It said, you know, when a big man or when a young man, you know, does his first kill or whatever, does his first game, you know, he has a big head. He, he begins to think that he's better than other people. And so we humble them to make sure that he doesn't actually kill somebody else. Right. I'm, I'm terribly destroying that quote, but that was such a beautiful idea. And it's something we see every single day nowadays. Right. When you when you get your pride gets in front of you you become big-headed right and it's so easy for people to become arrogant and prideful and 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 all that stuff so if you no longer have that culture right where you're being humbled where you're having to share everything that you have that inherently creates a more individualistic and i say that in the bad terms because again hunter-gatherer cultures were very individualistic like they didn't just do whatever you told them to do. They had their own ideas for who, where they were going to go, you know, what they were going to hunt, what, whatever, right? They were way more individualistic than most of us today. <laughs> like they can hunt for themselves. They can, you know, clean, cook, all this stuff, right? But they always knew that they lived in a community, in a group of people, in their band, and they lived and died for their group, for their group. Right. But today we have this idea that um, individualism means everything is for you, for me, for just the person I am. We think that's what individual individualism means. That's not what individualism means. That's that's selfishness. Right. That's being self-centered. Bullishly so arrogantly. So in reality, the best part about individualism is being able to is being a free thinker is being able to make your own choices and being self-sufficient. And I don't mean self-sufficient and I mean that you don't need anybody else. I mean that in the terms of, you know, you can make your own choices for yourself. You don't have anybody telling you what to do. Right. You don't need anybody telling you what to do. A lot of a lot of people today, they need people to tell them what to do right? Or else they won't do it or they don't know what to do, right? We see that so much today. But these hunter-gatherer cultures, they had nobody above them. There was no manager. There was no boss. There was no chief. None of that. It was completely egalitarian. If they wanted to go hunt at a certain place, 
they had to go, you know, convince the group. I think this is where we should go. And people were like, hmm, maybe I agree, maybe I disagree, whatever, right? But and when you begin hoarding resources as a food producer, whether it's fishing, um, making crops or whatever, right? You begin to hold power. And because you're not being humbled with, oh, you need to share that, or, 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 or oh, you know, it doesn't really matter, right? Like humble yourself. When you're not being humbled, that pride just builds. So that pride of, oh, this is mine. This is what I created. And so, of course, it's going to be less egalitarian. Because once that power structure kicks in, now becomes way harder. Because now you created a difference between the people who have a lot are usually more healthy, stronger, and they can give out. They can, they can, they have that power structure, right? It's obvious. Like if you have more corn or whatever, more fish than other people, then people have to come to you in order to get, you know, what they need. And again, I need to, I'm not sure if I'm visualizing this for you enough. Like in my head, it works like this, right? In a hunter-gatherer culture, everybody gets what they need on a daily basis. Everybody gets what they need on a daily basis. So if you happen to hunt more or gather more than somebody else, it doesn't matter because it's being shared with everybody. Every time you, you begin to get prideful, you get humbled. And so your happiness is not tied to some pride. Your happiness is not tied to whatever. It's tied to being your free agency and your belonging in the community. When you begin to um, hoard food, hoard resources, right? Two things happen. On one side, you begin to have more than other people to the point where either you can't share as much or you don't want to share as much. Maybe because you put in more work to hoard, right? Maybe because you actually did put in a lot of work to, you know, get all that fishing and nobody was there to humble you. It's like, oh man, you did put on that work, but I don't know if it will be enough for all of us. Those fish seem skinny, right? <laughs> There's nobody there to humble you to, to bring that, that to, to knock that pride down a little, a few notches. And so you just happen to, you know, build up that pride for weeks on end, right? Or whatever. So now you really do have something to, to you feel proud about and you, you want to protect because that's just the human thing. That's the animal thing, right? You have that, those resources that you have a bunch of fish for yourself or you have a bunch of crops that you got for yourself. And now you want to share that with your family, right? You can't share that with everybody because then all that work will go to not, right? Um, but now you get to choose who has what, who has what, who has access to what. Um, and because you can choose, you can go a whole week or so, you know, without having to actually go out and work anymore. Maybe you spent the first week getting all that food and the next week you don't have to do anything while other people are going around, going this and that and the other. And if a famine hits in that time, you might just be, you might have lucked out. You might have lucked into the idea of you having all the resources. There was a famine or there was a drought or whatever, right? So now the people who usually hunt and gathered, who usually went into forage, they, they, they are out of luck. And so you can be like, oh, 
I got this extra fish. And so people have to come to you for it, right? And so now you create a power system, power structure, where you're, you have that resources and they don't, and they have to come to, to you for it. It creates pride. And this happens more with males than females, might I add. This is a known thing, right? Like something in the male mind, <laughs> you know, creates a, a, a pride thing. I, I would like, I'd love to see some neural neuroscience on that. But in a lot of these times of gather cultures, they they humbled the man, the, the the male, because they had that that pride is more often. Or maybe it, it was just, you know, maybe it was the act of hunting rather than the male or female thing. Maybe it was um because when you're foraging, you know, when you're or rather when you're gathering, when you're getting nuts and berries and stuff like that it's a it's a more a little bit more communal maybe like maybe every day you're talking to these people you're working together to go out and get that this that and the other you're getting the same amount but when you're hunting even though it's still communal you're still with one you know one little group it's usually maybe one person who does a kill right you do that that good throw boom it's injured you know it's bleeding out if you did it real well you can kill that that beast in one hit and so that one person gets to kill so yeah, I went to get some uh, some more water. <laughs> so yeah, that one person gets the kill. I mean, like, oh man, I, I did that, right? I did that. That's nice. <laughs> so of course, it's like that action is is just inherently gives you more endorphins than you know getting you know a little berry here, a little berry there, you know here and that and stuff like that. Don't get me wrong, you do get endorphins for for gathering stuff. Like if you ever you know did a did a um looking fine thing or easter egg thing you know i think it gives that same feeling but just the the adrenaline rush right from running after something and then like killing it that's just i haven't killed anything myself but like you know when you play games like survival games i feel like it has a little bit of that and you know when you're running you know your body naturally creates you know more of that endorphins and all that other stuff when you're just when you're in that action right it, it just creates a, a, a really big high um, where everything is engaged in that action. So maybe that's it. And maybe it's both, right? Maybe because males were more often to go hunting because they had, you know, a stronger upper body, then that created that maybe that fed into, you know, the genetic disposition of kind of reinforcing that because it's never one or the other. It's usually it's never only nurture or nature It's usually both. Right. So maybe the behavior of hunting, you know, over time created uh, a, a disposition for, for males to have more of that, you know, um, pride or more of that high from, you know, doing that sort of, that sort of uh, effort. But again, I don't know. I may be completely wrong. <laughs> so that's just me kind of thinking through it. Uh, it doesn't really matter too much. The point is that whatever did happen, happened. And, and what happened, what happened was as agricultural societies became more common, all these bad effects started happening, started accruing, right? Um, and it wasn't instant, right? It was over time where, 
over time, they noticed agricultural societies tend to be shorter, tended to be, you know, less, nutri less um, nutrient rich, um, less egalitarian, all this stuff started happening over time, right? So we, we can see that in, in these societies, you know, because they lived more in family groups and like literally just your immediate family on a huge farm, right? And they had less access to a larger group they were less genetically diverse. Yeah, <laughs> you know what that means. Um, and that affects a lot of things. And, you know, they were also more, they, they worked hard more, right? Agriculture societies actually had more work that they had to do um, in a day, like from sunup to sundown, you're over there tending, tending the, the, the seeds or the ground or whatever, right? Doing all that stuff. While in hunter-gatherer cultures, they only spent maybe two to three hours, you know, hunting and foraging and all that other stuff. And the rest of the time, um, well, you had another five, four or five hours for like, you know, preparing stuff, cooking, cleaning. Um, um, yeah, pre pre preparation stuff, right? And the rest of the time was, was socializing, was doing art, was thinking, right? And so this, this, this idea that it was thanks to agriculture that we started doing art and doing higher ed, doing math and all this stuff. That's false. A lot of that dates back to hunter-gatherer cultures. What had happened was over time, after you had enough time of, of agriculture, you begin to have a power structure where you had um, the, the elites, right? where you had a certain class of people who were able to aggregate more resources than anybody else for a number of reasons. Maybe they were the patriarch of the family, right? And when you're in a small group of just your family, right? If the, if the male is abusive, there's nobody else to stop him. If he's the most physically powerful person there, there's nobody else to stop him. In a community, in a band, you know, where you have 20, 30 people all unrelated to each other, right? If somebody gets big and uppity and abusive, you got the rest of the people to go and stop them. So of course it's gonna be, you know, a natural balance. But when you have a small group, a family, a nuclear family or extended family, the big man is gonna be, it's of course gonna be the quote unquote alpha male, even though that idea is totally fake. Like there's no alpha male wolf. And interesting enough that the scientists who originally found that this is one of the ideas I came up with the blockchain, like the scientist who really came, who originally came up with the whole alpha male thing, he realized his mistake and he went back and tried to fix it. He's been spending like, like 20 years trying to fix that mistake, trying to show that there is no alpha male wolf, right? <laughs> and um, that's another reason why, you know, blockchain updates, blah, 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 is so important. But anyways, the point is that there is a, there is, there, there's no alpha male, but there are, in a lot of mammalian, you know, um, with a lot of mammals, I think with a lot of other animals too, there's a, there's that clashing, right? There's a clashing of males where, you know, where, where either when the sons grow up, right, the big male um, would try to push him out of the pack or would try to fight them or something like that, right? for mating rights, you know, you see this all the time with different types of males, but it's not an alpha, right? They're not, they're not in charge of the group. 
that's the thing that people don't get. There's just because you're bigger doesn't mean you're in charge or anything like that. They just tend to have a a a, a um an advantage when it comes to um mating, when it comes to competing for 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 mating. Um, but besides that, they're they're not they're not they're not in charge of the group. They don't make any decisions or anything like that. They just you know tend to have a little bit of advantage. Um, but it's not sure. It's not it's not always the biggest person that wins, right? It could be the faster the one or the one that was a little bit smarter in how they went through it or whatever, right? Um, so yeah, when you when you have a group, the the strongest person. If they get abusive, especially that's especially important for humans. I'm not sure if other animals have like this abuse system. Well, I think I think that's a problem with intelligence, like because dolphins, they're, they're abusive, <laughs> you know. Um, so it might just be a, a thing with intelligence. I I, I want to look at the research on that, but I don't know. But basically, you know, when you have that abuse system and you have no checks and balances, no other people who can stop you, then you're gonna have that power structure is reinforced. So now you have somebody, you can collect all these resources and you have somebody there who is physically stronger than anybody else. Nobody can actually stop them, right? Nobody can check them. Nobody can humble them. And so, of course, that pride gets out of, out of control. And so now that person becomes a patriarchy. That person becomes the, the head of the household. And now they can, when they communicate with other people, they probably have the same thing, head of household, right? And if they don't, well, this person has the head of household person has more resources behind them, right? They didn't, they didn't have to share with their whole family group if they didn't want to. So they can have more resources to trade with or to, to, to um, barter or to compete with or whatever, right? So maybe they get that, that creates a, a system, a self-selecting system of this head of house, household works with another head of household rather than, you know, with an egalitarian person. Because you got to realize egalitarian hunter-gatherer cultures did not fail. They were not unsuccessful. They were extremely successful for hundreds of thousands of years. They only failed. They only lost due to humans, due to other humans in agricultural societies. That does not mean the agricultural society was better. They were simply more aggressive. That's another thing that we see in the research hunter-gatherer cultures tended to be more peaceful. And again, that is, that is somewhat subjective. There is some, some, um, there is some nuance there, right? Like what is peaceful, right? I mean that to say that we can actually see that hunt, hunter-gatherer cultures had less fighting between other bands, right? As far as we can tell today. And they likely had less infighting between themselves, at least violently, that we can tell. Um, like, we haven't seen a whole lot of people, a whole lot of hunter-gatherer um, skeletons that, were that died due to blunt trauma or due to some weaponry or some obviously thing, obvious, you know, fight with another human. There's only like a handful of those over the whole hundred thousand years of all these creatures. And maybe we haven't been looking enough. That could be it. But we definitely can see a whole lot of mass murder, basically, of, of death and between agricultural societies, right? The Neolithic period also saw a uptick on war. Again, it makes sense why, because there's more at stake. 
because when you've collected all these resources, you know other people have also collected a lot of resources. And so that creates an inherent, you know, competition of, oh, I can, if I can kill you, I can get all those resources, right? But in the hunter-gatherer culture, there was no point in killing other people. They didn't have more resources than you. They were, they lived just the same as you, right? And you were all just vibing together. Like, yeah, uh, you saw another band and they, if anything, they did gift giving. Yes, that's right. They, they, we actually see this in these hunter-gatherer cultures. Some of them built towns. Some of them built towns where they came together to give gifts or to do rituals. We see this. But in so the whole idea that there were no cities before Neolithic, um, before agricultural Neolithic times, that's false as well. We actually see cities being built by hunter-gatherers where they came, they went back to those cities maybe every year or every few years for specific purposes. But in agricultural societies, because they were more sedentary, right? Because they had all these resources that they, they, they could not move or they weren't, it wasn't very easy to move. They created these settlements. They stayed in those areas. And, you know, when you have an elite class they were the ones who were doing a lot of the thinking and the art and the innovation because they're the ones who had the time. Most other people were required to do all the hard work. So for the vast majority of people in agricultural societies, it was very much like today, right? Where you had the, the working class who didn't have much time to be doing all this other stuff, right? To do all this thinking and art and all this other, you know, um, what we call today first world or, or you know, um, whatever, these privileges. That started with agricultural societies. And hunter-gatherer societies, they spent more time on art. They spent more, everybody had, could, do, could, could spend some time on art, on rituals, on thinking, on all this stuff. But agricultural societies, it took them years and years, decades, hundreds, if not thousands of years to accrue enough resources to the point where they had a ruling class of people who just could sit around and think and do art and all this other stuff. So if you look at the, if you look at the Neolithic period, you actually see that it took some time before all this technology started to advance, right? Most of the technology was was just for plowing or farming um, source of tools. You didn't have the technology that we that we today think about the Neolithic period until you know a couple couple thousand years later. Whew, so yeah. <clears throat> so we we made a mistake. That book says I think there's a book about it. I haven't read it yet, but. Um, I was talking about the titles like um, agriculture was agriculture the worst mistake of humans ever like I've, I've <laughs> something like that I've, I've heard him talk a little bit on some podcasts so I know what he was talking about but yeah this is where I got some of those ideas from so all that to say <laughs> go back all the way to the beginning of this scarcity is not a good thing Scarcity is not even a natural, quote unquote, natural thing. It's artificial. We created scarcity to justify agriculture, to justify the practice of hoarding 
resources. This, I think I'm pretty sure this is going to be something that's very difficult for a lot of us to grasp, to come to grips with, right? It's hard for me as a person who loves technology and all this stuff that we have today. It's hard for it was hard for me for a long time. And because I've heard this idea, I heard this idea probably two, three years ago. And it wasn't until like I started actually researching into hunter-gatherer cultures and seeing why we got to the where we are and trying to figure out how to make a more self-fulfilled society, how to raise our global consciousness, how to build a business around, you know, better being better humans, unlock potential. It, it, it hasn't been until I've done all this research that I realized that, oh my gosh, this is seriously a in in a deep, deep problem in our society. But what the reason why I think it's so important to go over this over and over again is to make clear that this is not a, a fundamental problem of human, of humans. It's a problem of our society based off of agriculture, right? Which is relatively recent. Again, it's only for the last nine to 10,000 years that agriculture was a thing. Humans are not inherently evil. Humans are not inherently greedy. Humans are not inherently whatever, right? These bad things. <clears throat> Humans are very smart. <laughs> we can be very kind. We can be very altruistic. We can be very, you know, all these other, you know, positive things that we, that we know of ourselves, empathetic and so on and so forth. And we were that for a long time. What people fail to realize, especially today, is that we humans are animals, just like every other animal. And animals are, their behavior is determined by the environment. I don't want to go into that whole environmental determinism crap. Like, I'm not trying to put some word on it. It's logic, right? Your behavior is going to be constricted by the environment that you're in. If you're in a forest, you're going to eat things that are in the forest. You're going to use wood or whatever else is in the forest to make to make stuff, to make tools or, you know, habitats or whatever, right? You're not going to be in the forest and then find some sand out of nowhere and make some make a or live, you know, make a beach or whatever. This it just doesn't make sense. The environment determines your behavior. However, this is why I don't like the idea of environmental determinism is because the idea itself, like we, 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 we came up with the definition, like if you look up the definition of environmental determinism, it's a straw man. It's a straw man argument, like from the basis of, of how they define it. But because it, it doesn't consider the fact that humans and every other animal also change the environment. It's not either or, right? It's not binary. It's not, it's not just one and the other. It's we are, we are constrained by the environment. And then, or at the same time, we also change that environment. It's a, it's a cycle, right? You live in a forest. It's like a beaver or whatever, or a hummingbird, right? You live in a forest and you eat of the forest, you, you use those t 
tools in the forest to do your, your, your whatever you want to do. And then you also customize it for yourself, right? You personalize the experience of the forest to what's better for you. Many animals do this. We as humans are just another animal that does the same thing. The difference between those animals and us, as far as we can tell, is that we're supposed to be self-aware. Is that we can look in the mirror, we can look in the reflection of the of the water and notice that this is this is us. This is not a different animal. This is not some other thing. This is us. We can look at an object and we can think about that object. We can realize that this object is going to go in our bodies and it's going to come out. And you know, that is going to go back into the, the land and it's going to grow something else. We can think about these things. As far as we can tell, no other animals have this ability or close to like similar to what we have, right? So this ability to be self-aware, to make, to run simulations in our minds, right? Is unique for us. That's what makes us different. It's not that we are necessarily quote unquote better than other animals or less animalistic, whatever that means. We're the same thing as them. And this shows you that we're the same because if we if we were so evolved, so trend transcendent, right? Will we have created this stupid world that we live in where half where more than half of the population of our of ourselves, like of our other fellow humans, don't live good lives? If we were so transcendent than other beyond living so far beyond other animals, would we have created, you know, a world where we have this viral coefficient where we where we think of viral coefficients as a good thing like unchecked growth is not good unchecked growth is a virus covid you know cancer that's unchecked growth and yet in business in capitalism i'm not trying to poo poo capitalism I, I can talk about that later but We just have gone so far down the rabbit hole of our society today that we are trying to justify our own, the smell of our own shit. Like we're trying to justify the, the, all this bull crap that we tell ourselves. We can't have unchecked growth. We can't have growth ad infinitum. We can't keep progressing in the materialistic plane. And I say it like that because the only growth that you can have infinitely or like without consequences is mental growth, is learning more, being more mature, being more wise. I don't think that comes with the right with the with the consequences with cost because it's not physical. Like we're not taking something from somewhere else and then putting it in another place. Any sort of materialistic growth is inherently limited. Any sort of inherent is physical growth. Any, any technology that we can come up with, any, you know, any physical technology, because I think there's an idealistic technologies as well that, that like language is a idealistic technology, but any physical technology, any physical, 
products and money, monetary system, any physical monetary system, any, um, any physical thing that we, we, we can imagine comes at a cost. And as a hunter-gatherer culture, that cost was obvious, right? If you wanted meat, you had to go kill that animal, another animal, and you saw it die. Somebody brought it, and you saw them bring it to the camp, right? You had to take it apart, whatever. When you go and pick off berries or get fruits and vegetables, you saw the difference. You saw the cost, right? You saw that when you went to grab that fruit, there was less fruit there. It's simple math. It, you didn't even have to think about the, the math. It was just logic, right? You, you take this, there's less there, right? So you knew that over time, you couldn't keep taking from this bush. You had to go find another bush. You couldn't keep taking from this thing. You had to go find another one, right? You couldn't stay in this area and kill everything and, and, and gather everything. You had to go to another area until this one regrew. It was inherent logic in hunter-gatherer cultures. But our society, since it's based on the agricultural society, it, it, it made us delusional. It made us think that we can just grow whatever food that we want on this land. We can control the land to grow stuff. And it just keeps growing whenever. But actually, the cost was just hidden, right? That like it's not magic, it's not it didn't come out of nowhere. Whenever you go and grow stuff, you first you have to find the seeds, you have to put it in the ground, you have to water it. So you, that's another thing. The water comes from somewhere, put it in the ground, and it's taking nutrients out of the ground. So that's one thing you know that's hidden is the, the fact that you're taking nutrients out of the ground. So you can't keep growing there. Over time, agricultural societies did realize this, that you can't keep growing the same crop in the same ground forever. Unfortunately, it took them, they had to, you know, kill the ground before they realized what happened. <laughs> so that's why many um, food production cultures had to innovate, right? They had to figure out charring. They had to figure out, um, you know, biocharring where you burn the ground to put more, you know, nitrogen or whatever in there. And you had to do, um, like, we, don't get me wrong. Agriculture still come out with some great, we, we create, we created great innovation, technology, all this stuff. We did progress. I'm not saying we didn't. I'm just saying that that progress came at the cost of something because much, much of that progress was physical, was materialistic. When you, invent a new thing, a new tool, right? All you're doing is taking something from somewhere else and putting it in a new form. Energy is neither created nor destroyed. And so we created all this technology as a agricultural society, as an agrarian, agrarian society. And every step of the way, it's just like the frog who, who gets burnt who gets boiled to death because the, the, the water's being turned up just a little bit, just a little bit every time, just a little bit until it burns, it burns to death. That's literally what's happening on this earth, right? We take, we're taking resources from somewhere, hoarding it in one place, 
And we're not even thinking about what's happening to the environment or to the cycle or to whatever, right? And we keep doing this every year, every century, every generation, every society. And so of course, it's just a matter of time before it all collapses. It's, all, it's just a matter of time before the environment that we kept taking stuff from collapses. Energy is neither created nor destroyed. But we think we're just creating stuff. We think technology is just creating new things. No, it's not creating new things. Materialistic technology is just taking from one place and putting it in another place. Simple as that. But we forgot that. Where does your computer come from? What resources went into making this, this computer or this phone that you're looking at me, that you're watching this video on? Where did that all that energy come from? Where, where do you think it came from? It came from somewhere. Somebody had to mine these resources out the ground. Somebody had to put in the sweat equity to build this up. Somebody had to, you know, drive it to whatever, all this other stuff. There's so much that goes into it. And most of us have no idea you know, of that cycle. And so, of course, it is going to collapse. That's the problem with scarcity. With the realization that, well, first of all, the problem with scarcity is that, number one, it creates a power structure. So it's inherently not egalitarian. You cannot have egalitarian society and scarcity. Number two, it creates a, a disillusionment, a, a or rather a delusionment, <laughs> you become, creates an incentive to be delusional. That's what I mean to say. Because when you have a scarce system, you realize that there is a finite amount of resources. And because of that, you hoard those resources for yourself. But that comes at the cost of wherever you got those resources from. And because you're not thinking about how those resources will be replenished, because to you, it's, it's, it's scarce. It's, it's not that much. You have to get it now or else you won't get it or somebody else will get it or else it will go away or whatever, right? And so it, it creates an incentive for you to not think about you know, it being replenished or even if you know it's going to be replenished, it, it, it creates an incentive for you to take that for yourself, the means of production, right? Control the means of production? Yeah, that's an inherent, inherent you know, thing of capitalism. You control the means of production. You get this land where you found those resources and you're in charge of that thing, right? But it still creates an incentive for you to think about how can I get more profits? How can I get more of this resource now? And think less about how can I replenish the land? Because replenishing the land takes time. And as, as capitalists love to say, time is money, right? And time is not scarce. It's infinite. It's made up. We made up time. Other cultures, especially hunter-gatherer cultures, like even many African cultures that were not hunter-gatherers but still had a similar relationship to time, they did not see time as Europeans do, as the Eurocentric view where it's linear, 
where it's partitioned into minutes, hours, days, years. Many African cultures, and, and I, I believe I taught this a couple, a few episodes, maybe like a year ago, I don't know. But African cultures, some Asian cultures, they see time different ways. So many African cultures see time as a cycle, as going out of your head and into the back of your head, right? Where, you know, you, you, you know it's going to change, but it's always going to come back to, you know, to your memories, to where it was before, right? Because it's a cycle, right? You have wet season and dry season. You know it's going to be a different season coming up, but it's the same season as that happened before, Right? So in those societies, people know, quote unquote, know that time is infinite, that time is abundant. Where there is no time lost if you're just sitting around because that time would just come back when the sun goes up and sun goes, the sun goes up and comes back down. It's, it's, it's a new, it's a new day. You can do the same thing that you just did. It's an inherent thing. And people, you can poo-poo that if you want. You can have your Eurocentric or your ethnocentric views on that. But that's subjective. Your view of time, of time being scarce, of time being limited, is subjective. Because time itself is a human construct, first of all. Yes, there is cause and effect, but the, but the measure measurement of of change right the measurement of change that's what time is measurement of movement of change is subjective no other animal you don't see an animal any other animals you know trying to count their clocks or whatever they're trying to make clocks or anything like that right it's a useful invention it's a useful technology but it is subjective every culture has their own idea of time. So no, time is not inherently scarce either. That is once again, a proponent of agrarian societies. But because agrarian societies say, see, saw everything as scarce, then it creates inherent anxiety and it creates more aggression. Because now you have something to protect. You have to protect your time, protect your, your resources, protect you know this limited stuff that you have today that somebody else can take from you. In an abundant society, it doesn't matter if somebody takes from you. Because you know tomorrow you'll be good. You'll get, not about getting even, is that you can just go hunt something tomorrow. You can go find something tomorrow. You never, you never go days starving. That's another, you know, miss, miss, um, uh, mistake or um, shoot, mis misattribution. Star starvation came into the fat, came into play during agrarian societies because in hunter gatherer societies they were so sufficient, they were so talented at finding resources in the around the, the around them. That they never went a you know multiple days starved, even even to this day, right? And well, not no longer because 
I was going to say the Kalahari Desert, um, the, the Khoisan, and there was another group, there's a couple other groups that are in the Kalahari Desert. This is the most, quote unquote, scarce place, right? They have droughts all the time. It looks arid. It looks dead to most of us, right? But to these hunter-gatherer cultures that lived there that actually were able to to um to live to thrive there until the 60s until the 70s until the diamond company went and started mining up the entire stuff and pushed them out the land and all this other stuff right before before they came in all this time from 200,000 years ago until 30 years ago these cultures were able to survive in the worst place on earth the Kalahari Desert, which is one of the worst places on earth, right? It's it's less, quote unquote, abundant as far as we know. Like they can't grow anything there. Like the reason why the Kalahari Desert, like the people, the Khoisan were able to survive there when all the other hunter-gatherer cultures were being killed off or being, you know, outcompeted by agrarian societies. And I say outcompeted because again, you know, agrarian society, you can store up more resources. And so- people would look at that and you'd be like, oh, we can do that. So they would want to do that. It's just like a virus, right? Like it's not obvious that this is a bad thing until you stored up a whole bunch of resources and then you realize, boom, a famine hits and now you're out of luck. Or boom, you know, uh, um, a super bug hits and then you're out of luck. Boom, a <laughs> disease hits, then you're out of luck. Boom, right? All this stuff happens only in agrarian societies. But in the Kalahari Desert, they couldn't grow anything. The land is so infertile, you can't grow anything. But these Khoisan people, they look at that land and they see a Walmart. They see a Sam's Club. Like They see hundreds of things that they can eat and hunt and all this other stuff. And it's easy for them to just, oh, that's what we can eat that. We can do that. We can... They, Right. It's it's so it's like a, it's literally like a Walmart to them, like you see exactly what's useful, what's not, what what's going to feed them for the day and so on and so forth. And they actually did. Again, this is research. This is I'm not coming up. I'm not coming up with this stuff out of nowhere. You can look at this research. It says. When there was a during the drought of uh, South Africa um, last century. Oh, excuse me. The Khoisan people. Ate, I think almost double their calorie intake, almost double. While the other South Africans living in the cities and so on and so forth, they were starving during the drought. So these Kalahari people, the Khoisan and so on and so forth, they knew how to make use of the land. They knew how to adapt no matter what, right? It was only other humans, other super aggressive humans that destroyed their way of life. So some of some people might see that as a, oh, yes, he humans are so, so great. <laughs> right. No. That's a virus. I say that because it's so apropos right now. Right. If cancer or virus can go in your body and proliferate. Are we going to say that's a good thing? Just because it can proliferate super well, just because it can kill off your entire immune system in a matter of days, or worse, it may take a month for it to kill off your entire immune system. And meanwhile, you infect your entire family, and then after that, everybody dies. Is that a good thing? Obviously not. Obviously not. That is the problem 
with agrarian societies, with this idea of scarcity, is that it seems like a good idea or it doesn't seem harmful, right? It doesn't obviously seem harmful at first glance or at second glance or at third glance. It might even seem good, like a good thing, right? There are plenty of viruses on this earth who do the same thing, like an amoeba, right? They infect their host. They, they go through several ones, but one of them, I think, no, I think multiple of them do this, where they affect the host, and then they go in that host's brain and make that host go to, like, another, like, for instance, when they affect a, a, a fish, right, or a snail or whatever, right, whatever the smallest one is, and they go to that brain and make them go to the place where the next predator is, and they, like, shine, it's, it's, it's like, they make their, their, their eyes shine different colors so it's very attractive to the predator to, to us to other things to come and eat that thing so that amoeba can grow to can grow can it go to the next host and it repeats that process right that's a similar thing that we've done with scarcity with with materialistic technology it's an it's a it's an idea it's a virus that has infected us and it makes these shiny tools these cool things it's like yeah yeah do more of this and meanwhile, just affecting more and more of us, you know, destroying the 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 few of us left that have could that could have survived in a world without you know materialistic technology. And now it creates a society where most of us can't even imagine going back. Where where we might not even be able to go back because we've changed the environment so much, where the earth wouldn't be able to you know, be sufficient for 7 billion humans. And I, I want to point out that it's not a population problem. Like, I, I've been saying this for a long time, but overpopulation is not the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. And I say it like that because if you, if you just try to solve or fix, you know, um, cure a, a disease or a condition, whatever, by just, you know, attacking the symptom, you're not going to solve the problem. The, the, the problem is still going to be there. That's how a lot of our medicine works, where we, you know, attack the symptoms. I say, oh, you got a headache? Take this pill. Oh, you got, you know, inflation? Take this pill. But those are just the symptoms. And then you still have the problem. You might even have more problems now because they had side effects. And so now you got to take more pills. Or now you get, you, you're, you're taking the pills for longer, right? And so you have to ask yourself, is this actually solving the problem? Like, why do I have headaches? Why do I get this? Why am I coughing? Why am I whatever, right? If your doctor actually takes the time to do real, you know, doctor work and get down to the first principles, get down to the, the actual core of the problem, they can prescribe you a better medicine to actually solve that problem, to actually cure your sickness. But in our society, that's not what we're doing. We, we, in our society, we, we kind of think of it as normal that we solve the symptoms. Like people will say, oh, it's a symptom, but you can solve the symptoms to make you, feel, make you feel easier and then you can solve the problem. But the problem with that is that we've incentivized our entire infrastructure, at least in America, to solve 
the symptoms and never go to the core issue, never actually saw cure the disease. And so if we think overpopulation is, is the problem, right, when it's actually the symptom, even if you do the worst thing ever and do a genocide, kill billions of people, like Thanos, right? Snap the world, half the population's left. That's not going to solve the problem. Because all that's going to happen is that people are going to be like, oh, all, all you had to do was kill half the population. Now, look at us. Now we have more stuff than ever before. But it's still based on a scarcity mindset. So now you're just going to have more people aggregating more stuff. People trying to get bigger houses, more cars, more TVs, more this, that, and the other, right? And we call that abundance. That's not abundance. That's materialistic scarcity, materialistic hoarding. And so we try to get more and more of these resources. And that creates a whole problem all over again. If anything, at that point, it's going to happen once again. And then what? You know, now you have 3 billion people and you still have, you still have, you know, global warming. You still have climate change, rather. You still have these problems with the, with the um, um, mining, like mining these <laughs> blood mines and, and the child labor, slave labor, all this other stuff. You still have all these problems. So now what? You're going to kill another another half a billion people? Another half of the population? It's just going to happen all over again. These ag agrarian societies didn't they they only have what less than a million humans on the earth at the, at that time when the agrarian societies started popping off? Agrarian societies enabled us to overpopulate, enabled us to to think that we can have a whole bunch of people Right in this in this in this town or in this city, and you just all you had to do is make sure everybody was fed, put everybody to work, and the, the the ruling class they actually got to live the good life, they got to live the life that the hunter gatherer cultures lived, but they were still worse off. They had worse. They still had less health. They had the pure bloods. They were <laughs> less than less genetically diverse. So, so yeah, I'm going to bring this to an end. I've been talking a long time. I thought we just got two glasses of water. My throat's still dry. So, um, <clears throat> scarcity is not a good thing. And like I said, I want to make clear, I'm not trying to poo-poo capitalism. I'm not trying to poo-poo all the, <laughs> like, shit talk, all the technology progress we've had. Yes, this is amazing that you and I can talk right now across the world. I, I always say that. And it's amazing the stuff that we did come up with, that we went to the moon. Like, would hunter-gatherer cultures have done this? I'm not sure. That's the thing. We can't say that. We can't say that they wouldn't have come up with this stuff. Like, you can probably point to the people in the Kalahari Desert. Like, they clearly didn't come up with any rockets or anything like that in this span of time, but they've also have not really been able to, you know, expand beyond their, their zone. Right. And they had high fulfillments. Like they didn't really care about going to the moon or whatever. 
and and like i always say i've said this before and this is the more extreme radical idea even more radical than everything else i've been talking about but maybe they were using you know non-materialistic technology maybe their use of um rituals maybe their use of um psychedelics maybe that allowed them to go beyond this plane of existence maybe that allowed them to travel amongst the stars in a way that we will we still don't understand you know and that sounds absolutely crazy I, i'm not gonna say i'm not gonna say it's not but we have to at least think about these things because especially now with our science we're coming up to a part where i said it before we're realizing that space and time is not fundamental, meaning that we look up in the sky and we see stars, but all of that could be a simulation. All of that could be, you know, just a made up part of our brain. All that could basically not be quote unquote real. So this, this, this progress, this um, achievement of going to the moon and going to Mars and going beyond the solar system could be the same thing as being proud for you to go into the moon in Roblox or, you know, Valheim or, you know, playing a video game like, oh, yeah, see, I did this. But be like, OK, that was good that you did in the game. But what about real life? Right. So maybe they figured out that these rituals or these psychedelics or whatever actually allowed them to go beyond the matrix, beyond the simulation. I don't know. I don't know. All I'm saying is that our science is actually showing us, our research is showing us that a lot of what we see in a, a philosophy, logic, right, is showing us that we might not even be living in the base reality. We might not even be living that this materialistic thing that we have today is might not even be important in a grand scheme of things. So we like to... We have to think twice before we assume that we are making good, quote unquote, progress. We have to really think twice about that. So before you try to, you know, ignore everything I'm saying about this and saying, oh, at least we have technology, at least we have the Internet. You got to remember, trees had the Internet before we did. That's right. They have a fungal internet. Look it up. Where they with the myocillin, 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 whatever it's called. They have these fungus um, connections between different trees, and they actually share information. Where they actually show, hey, I'm uh, this is low on resources over here, and this is has more oxygen, or this has more stuff in the soil, and they exchange, you know, those resources based on uh, what is low or what is high in, in the different trees and, and the fungus. It's very interesting. It's absolutely insane to think about, but look it up. So, and that's just one example, right? That's just a, another material example, but that shows you that biology has created, you know, a lot of the technology that we're trying to create today. Like we're trying to create drones and these autonomous vehicles. And, you know, meanwhile, you got ants, you got bees. That's basically their own autonomous vehicles. You know, every day, a lot of scientists, a lot of computer scientists are looking at how nature works to describe, to try and figure out how we can make better computers, 
right? And another example is uh, biophilia. Biomimetics is a realization that humans are not meant to live in the habitats that we are living in today, right? You hear that you see this in zoos where in the 90, 1990s, they realized that, you know, it's not good to keep a gorilla in a cage. It's not good to keep a lion in the cage, right? That lion, that gorilla, whatever, becomes depressed. It becomes, you know, really messed up, unhealthy. It's very inhumane. And so they created their habitats to reflect their real life habitat. That's why we have these zoos today. We have these wide open expanses for lions and these huge, you know, trees where gorillas and monkeys and all that can go through, the, can swing through the trees rather than just being little fences and little, little, little uh, cages. Because they realize that this is inhumane and this is unhealthy for those animals. And yet, at the same time, here we are living in these cages. Here we are living in a house that has nothing to do with our natural habitat. And we, and every time we do more research into what makes humans more productive, right? More, more fulfilled, more happy, less depressed, less anxious, less lonely. Turns out <laughs> we need to just reflect our natural habitat, which is more light, more sight lines, living uh, more of a savanna type of uh, setup, having shadows and trees and plant life, right? All this stuff, <laughs> natural air, all this stuff, right? It's crazy that we've delusioned ourselves so much into thinking that we are not animals, into thinking that we are some transcendent beings, into thinking that this, we are God's creatures, right? And I'm not going to go into the whole religion thing because that's a whole other thing for a whole other episode. But suffice to say that rituals are different than religion. I at least want to point that point out that these hunter-gatherer cultures who had rituals were, again, more egalitarian. They didn't have a chosen one. They didn't have priests to be the only ones to tell you what you should do and what you should not do. They had these things where they came together and they felt this this collective sense of i don't know what you want to call it ser ser serendipity or this um transcendence or whatever you want to call it right where they were able to uh, have some relationship with spirits with nature with the beyond whatever you want to call it right they had everybody in the community had a relationship with that but today we don't have any of that right even in churches you don't have that even in, in these Religions, you don't have that. And it's because they're hierarchical, because they're inherently scarcity based, right? Where you have to have, you have to do this thing and this amount of people will go to heaven or these are the chosen ones and this is the rules you have to follow. And you have to listen to these people who are come down to tell you this is what God said or whatever, right? And these other cultures, they did not have that. These Hierarchical church structures and religious structures are inherently unegalitarian. Yeah, these, you know, right wingers talking about freedom, but at the same time, when they go to church, you know, listen to a pastor and the deacons and all these people tell them what to do. Well, guess what? If you want an egalitarian culture, 
You might have to look at your religion. You might have to reconsider that. Anyways, I don't want to get too much into that. Not yet. <laughs> we like to demonize the idea of rituals and the idea of this, that, and the other, but a lot of the rituals they had before was dancing, singing, art. Was realizing that, you know, animals, other animals, whatever, was were, were really amazing creatures, was was a deep sense of gratitude. That was a lot of the rituals, was a deep sense of gratitude. When they looked at a lion and it was like, whoa, that's a majestic creature right there. We don't want to mess with that, right? <laughs> and they had these, these rituals about that. Um, again, I want to get into that too much right now, but it's just so sad that we've delusioned ourselves so much and we've indoctrinated ourselves so deeply into this idea that everything we're doing today is right, that we're on the right path, that we're making the right kind of progress. But our research, our science, our history is telling us a different story. So yeah, you really need to reconsider. And um, we really need to realize that we've constructed an entire environment where we are not fit to live. So many companies are trying to create these more open spaces and, you know, have more green spaces in their environments because they're realizing that this is, this, this is what makes it, makes people more productive and all this other stuff. But we're really just trying to go back to where we were go back to the hunter gatherer cultures that we that we were at before that was our peak experience was our peak humanity but until until we realize that on a mass scale it's going to be really difficult to go back there cuz there's going to be so many of us who are going to be pointing to progress pointing to quote unquote progress point and point competition quote unquote I say point and point, but you know, you know what I'm saying. They're gonna be pointing to all this stuff that we have today, saying, "Oh yes, look at all we've created," without actually embarking on critical thinking, without actually having practicing that free thinking that everybody wants to have nowadays. So many people just want to assume that we're doing the best we can, or or we're 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 at our best point in evolution than we ever were, when in reality we're ten thousand years behind. And that sucks to say, don't get me wrong, it's this hard. It's hard to admit, it's hard. But until we admit it as a species, as a, as a society, it's gonna be really difficult to, to solve all these issues that we have in our society. And that's just the truth of it. That's just the truth of it. But yeah. I don't like to leave it on the bad note. I never do. But I'm going to leave it right there because we, we have to think about this stuff. It has to hit hard. If you don't let it hit you, if you don't let it change your mentality, your mental models, your, your assumptions about the world, then you're not doing enough. You're not doing justice to yourself or to your society or to your, the future generations to come.
And that's simple. That's as simple as it is. And if you don't believe me, do your research. Let's debate. Let's talk about it. I'm ready. <laughs> I want to make some videos um, with visuals and and showing all that research for you and stuff like that. But right now, I'm just I'm just talking. Right now, I'm just getting this out of my head, sharing what I've been doing, sharing what I've been researching, sharing what I've been learning in the hopes that other people will, will learn alongside with me in hopes that I can document my learning process to show that I have not been on this way forever. Like just last year, I've been talking about, yes, let's make some technological progress. Last week, I was talking about, yes, let's build a business on this, that, and the other. But now I'm realizing that, I don't know, my business might have to be something different than the business. Maybe I have to be a hunter-gatherer. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to make my business into a hunter-gatherer culture. I'm trying to figure out if it's possible to build a, a modern-day hunter-gatherer culture that is a quote-unquote business that is able to get investment, but at the same time is breaking out of this whole idea of scarcity and this whole idea of... of um of agrarian society and, and, and elitism and all this other stuff. I'm, I'm wondering if it's possible to break out of the system from within the system. I don't know. People say, no, you can't. People say you can't change the system from within it, but I don't know. Cause the truth of it is that we can't not, we can't try, we can't not try to, and we can't burn it down. That's another thing. There's people that be like, burn it down. Let's start off from scratch. But the problem with that is number one, if you never actually learned why you're burning it down or what you're burning, that you would never solve the problem. It's once again, the same problem as overpopulation. If you just destroy the whole system, how are you going to learn from your mistakes? They burnt Atlanta down three, three times or something like that. It's still plenty racist. And that's been that's one of the worst parts about history is that there's so much that has been burnt down, that has been destroyed. That it's way more difficult than it should be to learn what happened. Because people wanted to go burn it down. People wanted to go pillage and do all this destructive crap. You have to learn from history if you want to make true progress, if you want to make a better future. If you burn the system down, if you burn the whole thing down, are you actually learning? What have you learned? What are you going to rebuild? What are you going to build? Tell me that first. If somebody can explain to me what they're going to build and how it avoids all these issues that we created over the last 10,000 years, I'll support you and let's, let's, let's burn the system down. But until then, don't. Pitch your, pitch your pitchforks away, pitch your torches away, and let's learn. All right? Let's learn. Let's do some research. Let's look at, analyze the systems that we have today. Let's deep dive into how we, we come up with these problems. And let's strategically figure out how to humanely, if not work backwards, at least practice, um, shoot, what's that word? Ishenga or... And that's not the word. The golden vase principle, um, or broken vase. I have to. I have to do this one because 
it's it's so beautiful where the Japanese culture where when they break you know the vase and they they put it back together with gold and it looks even more beautiful with gold here we go kent kentsugi kentsugi or kentsugi let's practice that we've already broken our society plenty enough all right we don't need to break it into into uh, 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 we don't need to obliterate it into fine pieces that we can't even put back together again okay that's what happens when you burn the society is that you not only are you, are you destroying already a broken system, but you're now grinding it into dust. And, you, and now you have nothing to build upon. You have to start over from scratch. And it's more likely that you'll just repeat the same mistakes. So let's rebuild. Let's take these broken pieces, point out the broken pieces. You know, let's bring them all together and say, hey, okay, this is a broken piece. This broke off from here. You know, this probably goes here. And then let's put it back together. Let's inlay it with gold, with, with our wisdom, right? And I think that will create a better society. That will create a much a more beautiful culture, humanity. And then we can really be rocking then. Then we can really transcend. Then we can really progress, right? We can go to the moon. We can go to the stars. We can go to beyond the next dimension, whatever you want to call it. We can go beyond. But we can't do that if we repeat the same mistakes. So yeah, if if that's the if the if I have to leave with a positive note, that's the positive note. It's like let's point out everything that's broken in our society. Let's put it, bring it together, and let's rebuild. Thanks for watching. As always, if you want to talk, if you want to fight. <laughs> If you want some research, um, like I have a whole Notion document where I put all my stuff on there, not just my research, but also like music I'm listening to, books, um, interesting websites or whatever. It's all there. I want to turn this into, you know, a curated experience. So I don't want to share in the description yet because it's very, very rough. I haven't really tagged everything. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. sorry. But uh <clears throat> Excuse me. But yeah, hit me up at Elijah Cloud, E L I J A H C O A U D E, if you want to talk, go in the comments. And please reach out. I've been talking to so many people. Like, shout out to my friend uh, Alexander. Um, shout out to my friends uh, Zach, Zachariah. Shout out to Carrie. Shout out to Tammy. Ha hearing all these people that are like, oh, I listen to your stuff. I love it. But y'all never reach out to me. I mean, Zach does. I gotta give him credit. He'd be reaching out um, more often. We 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 talk on a, on a on a daily basis, not daily, but like a weekly basis at least. So shout out to Zach. But like, if you actually watching these, if you the three, four, five people watching this stuff, hit me up, please. Put in the comments. Like, cause I feel like I'm going crazy. Like I've stopped so much stuff because I feel like I'm just there's no point in me sharing it. I'm still learning, right? I'm still I'm still doc documenting and jotting stuff down in my own private notes or something. I'm not gonna lie, I don't do it in my own private notes, <laughs> but I still do it in my head. 
and I still talk about it with people like in my discord I, when I, whenever I do start talking about it I'd be like putting stuff down everything I learned everything I'm all that stuff but I stopped blogging like I don't do as many of these videos as I as I want to or my podcast because I feel like nobody's watching it and if nobody's watching it there's no point in me putting it out right now like if anything I can even though I did have the plan of putting this out for the future I still want to be able to conversate with people to talk with people because I think that's when you really can get into some deep stuff. That's when you really can 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 vibe on some stuff, right? Because that's when, you know, when you're communicating with other people, you have to get out of your head and you have to communicate more effectively. You have to you have to go through your subject your subjective experience with theirs. You have to go through your assumptions. You have to I'm trying to guess what other people would have a problem with when I'm talking. And that's that's not good, right? I want to really know what other people have a problem with, or what people have difficulties understanding, or what people won't want to believe, or what I need to. That's another reason why I don't share sources because I don't know what people will, will actually want to read. Like, what what do you believe is right? What I'm right or wrong about? Like, should I share sources about the DNA stuff or about you know? Like, I I can pull out like twelve. 20 sources right but if nobody's going to read all that i'm just wasting my time like i could be spending this time just talking or just you know working on my other stuff you know it takes a lot of time to sit down and 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 aggregate every single source i've ever you know pulled anything from putting them all in the comments and 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 then lining up to like talking points in my video it takes a lot of time and if nobody's watching this right now there's no point i might as well just you know just talk like this and just keep it keep it moving if I want to document it for the future, I can document it just like this, rough and rough and ugly. And then, you know, in my own private notes, I have all my citations, you know, for me to refer back to by myself. But yeah, it takes a lot of time. So if you're watching this, hit me up, like for real, in the comments. I'm not, I'm not, you know, don't be scared. You know, don't be thinking that you're, I don't know, don't be thinking that you're dumb or that you that you are not as intelligent or whatever. Cause all of my stuff, it just comes from reading. I'm just a nerd. I just like to read. I'm not that smart. You might be able to tell by how I talk. I'm not that smart. I just read a lot. That's it, right? <laughs> and if you read, you know, as much too, you'll, you'll probably see the same thing. If you, if, even if you don't read, you'll probably have more raw intelligence than me. Like my friend, Carrie, I don't, I'm not sure if he reads as much, maybe he does he probably does read more than me in, in, in certain aspects but he's inherently way more intelligent in, in many in many aspects he can go on and on about this that and the other um my girlfriend you know she doesn't read a whole lot of stuff but she's a really good writer and and she has a really good memory like she she memorizes all these animals and so like she can she's one of those people who can point out like point point out to you what kind of butterfly you know, it's flying around exactly what kind of animal that was or whatever, right? The species and everything like she's that type of, you know, smart. And that's not me. I can't do that. Right. There's a lot of people I know who can be super smart about math or super smart about this, that and the other. And I'm not that. Only thing I have going for me is that I like to read and I'm very ambitious and ambitious in terms of I have a really big I have a really big like vision and I can grasp really big ideas, right? But that comes at the cost of, sometimes it's difficult to grasp small ideas for me, like small stuff. I'm just like, 
what? Like coding, really bad for me because I'm like, if I don't understand the entire assembly line language, like why a code works, like why syntax works, like what's the machine learning, like what's the binary, what's the electronic you know, configuration that makes this syntax work, it's going to be, it was, it's very difficult for me to understand code. And that's not a good way of going about code, coding. That's why I hate coding. That's why I couldn't continue it because it just, yeah, it just didn't, it just didn't vibe with me, like whatever. But anyways, my point is that don't think that you're not smart enough or whatever. Smart is, is subjective. There's eight different types of intelligence, at least eight. Okay. So don't be scared. Don't think you're not smart enough. Don't think you're not, don't have anything to talk to, even if it's just, oh, wow, I like this. Oh, wow, I didn't like this. Oh, wow, you know, I don't think that makes sense to me. Say that and we can talk, we can conversate. Like, cause I love to get to the point where I can help people understand something, right? Me talking right now is just me just, just sharing whatever's in my head and just blah, 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 blah. But the real discussion, the real conversation comes in when somebody else says, I don't understand this. Like, I don't think, I don't think that makes sense. And I'm like, okay, I understand why you think that here's, here's what I meant to say, or here's, you know, a good way of understanding it. Right. When we can have that dialogue, it's a better conversation for me. I enjoy that more than just talking. And hopefully that helps you to understand it more as well. So yeah, please, please, please leave a comment email me or hit me up on DMs or whatever, right? Just let's talk, all right? <laughs> so yeah, anyways, if you manage to sit through this two-hour conversation, <laughs> thanks for watching, thanks for listening, and uh, have a good day. Bye.